This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a crisp autumn night in 1885, William Dunham awoke just after midnight to the sound of a woman bawling. The way she was wailing, it sounded to Dunham like some kind of lover's quarrel between his servant and her boyfriend. They were always arguing. Frustrated, he got out of bed and shuffled to the back door. He threw it open and yelled at the small cabin behind his house to quiet down. Almost immediately, the night fell dead silent. Dunham slammed the door and went back to sleep. But it wasn't long before he was awoken again. This time, Dunham heard a woman screaming and glass shattering. He jumped out of bed and quickly grabbed his gun. He jerked open the front door and saw a dark figure towering over a young woman. Dunham aimed his gun and threatened to shoot unless the stranger dropped to the ground. The shadowy figure struck the woman, then fled into the night. Terrified, the woman ran into Dunham's arms. She wept into his shirt, screaming, My God, Mr. Dunham, we are all dead. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we'll continue our exploration of the violent murders committed by the so-called Servant Girl Annihilator, who slaughtered eight young women in Austin, Texas, throughout 1885. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Wherever you're listening, it really does help. 
Last week, we discussed the first four servant girl murders and the police's attempts to apprehend the killer. The early attacks escalated, culminating in the brutal murder and sexual assault of 11-year-old Mary Ramey. This week, we'll dive into the grisly slayings that followed Mary's death and the bloody Christmas Eve massacre that haunted Austin, Texas for years. After the sickening murder of Mary Ramey in August of 1885, Austin residents were more desperate than ever for the servant girl annihilator's reign of terror to end. Some reporters at the time hoped that immense press attention might scare the killer away. But that's not usually an effective tactic. According to criminology professor Scott Bond, some serial killers actually seek out public notoriety and actively engage in the creation of their public image. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Take, for instance, Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK killer. Rader regularly left letters for authorities to taunt them and even coined his own nickname of BTK. According to Scott Bond, these letters were an attempt to create terror, gain notoriety, and demonstrate intellectual superiority, driven by a need to show off his ability to outsmart his pursuers. In their effort to shine a light on the servant girl killer's disturbing crimes to bring the culprit to justice, Texas newspapers could have actually been egging him on. If he was after public upheaval, the servant girl annihilator was certainly getting what he wanted. Austin was on edge. Its citizens were rapidly growing more frustrated with their police force, who had yet to come up with any solid leads. The Austin Daily Statesman ran headlines almost every day highlighting the inefficiency of the police. Reporters blamed the continuing murders on corruption in the police department and city government. The police knew they were being scrutinized and were just as desperate as the public to put the matter to bed. But the fact remained they had little to go off of. The murders were seemingly random. Other than the demographics of the victims, there was nothing connecting them to each other. Authorities at the time had no experience with serial killers and thus had no precedent to work from. They were on their own. Mayor John Robertson decided to call in reinforcements in September of 1885. That month, Robertson hired detectives from Houston who promised they could track down the killer. They likened themselves to the famous Pinkerton National Detective Agency. The detectives' fame preceded them. Once they arrived, they tried to keep a low profile, but Austin was a relatively small town and word quickly got out. Before long, people were clamoring to catch a glimpse of the famous detectives, especially Captain Michael Hennessy. Hennessy was a 39-year-old ex-police captain from New Orleans, Louisiana. The Houston Daily Post touted him as one of the most skillful detectives in the profession. He was known for cracking high-profile cases. If anyone could save the city, citizens hoped it would be Hennessy. Residents couldn't help but buzz around the lobby of Hennessy's hotel, hoping for a peek at the great sleuth. But the acclaim wouldn't last for long. After a couple of weeks, it became clear that the detectives were no better off than the police. 
They couldn't find any clues as to the identity of such a random, elusive killer. Their ineptitude would cost the city dearly. Less than a month after the detectives arrived, the killer was seen again. In the middle of the night on September 27, 1885, two servant women were awoken by a strange noise coming from outside. Like other victims before her, one woman got up to investigate. She groggily lumbered to the door, rubbing the sleep from her eyes, and opened it to find a massive man standing just outside. He immediately moved into the doorframe and held the door open. He threatened to kill the woman if she opened her mouth, but the woman couldn't help it. She screamed anyway, as loudly as she could. Luckily for her, the threat was empty. The man turned tail and ran off after she yelled. Once again, he managed to get away into the dark before anyone could get a good look at him. But though he was jumpy, it seemed the Annihilator was also determined. The very next night, he tried again, this time targeting Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington. Gracie worked in the kitchen of Mr. William B. Dunham, while Orange was employed at Butler's Brickyard. They lived together in a small cottage on Dunham's property. On the night of September 28, 1885, Gracie and Orange housed two guests, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson. Both women worked as domestic servants for two other Austin families. Like many others, they were afraid to spend the night in their own quarters, and so stayed with Gracie and Orange to ensure their safety. According to the statesman, Lucinda woke up in the middle of the night because she was thirsty. When she turned on a light, she was startled to find a man standing outside at the window. He demanded she turn out the light and threatened to kill her if she didn't. Lucinda suddenly noticed Orange Washington and Patsy on the ground. They were covered in blood. Gracie was nowhere in sight. Lucinda panicked and tried to run, but the man intercepted her outside the cabin. Lucinda's terrified cries eventually woke William Dunham in the main residence. He threw open the door to his home, rifle in hand. Dunham cocked the gun and yelled for Lucinda's assailant to let go of her. The killer struck Lucinda over the head and fled into the night before Dunham could get a clear shot. It seemed the murderer knew just where to run to stay in the shadows, and soon Dunham completely lost track of him. This commotion woke Dunham's neighbor, Harry Duff, who owned a local saloon. Duff called the police and then ran next door to find Lucinda crying in Dunham's arms in the yard. With Duff's support, Dunham crept into the dark cabin while Lucinda continued to shake and sob outside. What the two men found inside turned their stomachs. Orange Washington, Gracie's boyfriend, lay dead on the floor, two deep gashes etched in the side of his head. Patsy was next to him, gasping for air. She also had been struck in the head, but somehow still clung to life. Duff and Dunham dropped to comfort Patsy. They couldn't see Gracie anywhere. Police arrived shortly after. They followed a bloody trail that led from the cabin over a fence and into the neighbor's yard, where they found Gracie's corpse, left in a disturbing state. Gracie's head had been smashed in with a brick. The murder weapon lay abandoned next to her lifeless body. The brutality was sickening, and as usual, 
the killer had gotten away. But this case was different than the others. Lucinda, the lone survivor, claimed to know exactly who the killer was. She'd recognized his face and voice. Without a doubt in her mind, the murderer was a man named Doc Woods. According to Lucinda, Doc Woods had been interested in Gracie before her murder. He asked her out, but she turned him down in favor of Orange. Lucinda assumed Woods had hunted Gracie and Orange down in retaliation. The Austin police and Houston detectives took Lucinda's accusations seriously. They were desperate for a break in the case and reprieve from the media scrutiny. Austin police combed the city for Doc Woods. They worried he would already be on the run, but found him fairly quickly at his home. His clothes were covered in blood, and he was arrested on the spot. It looked like the culprit had finally been caught. But the celebration was premature. When we return, the Servant Girl Annihilator's killing spree intensifies, and the citywide terror reaches a fever pitch. Now, back to the story. After the murders of Orange Washington, Patsy Gibson, and Gracie Vance on September 28, 1885, the police thought they'd finally caught the man responsible, Doc Woods. He had an unrequited crush on Gracie and was found wearing bloody clothing. But upon further examination, a doctor determined the blood on Woods' clothing was the result of an untreated venereal disease and wasn't the blood of the victims. The investigation faltered, but Woods' name still wasn't cleared in the eyes of the lawmen. Detective Hennessy took a statement from a young man named Johnson Trigg and afterward publicly proclaimed he had cracked the case. Trigg told Hennessy he was at a saloon called The Black Elephant the night of 11-year-old Mary Ramey's gruesome murder. Trigg overheard a man named Oliver Townsend telling bar patrons he was going to murder young Mary. The name Townsend rang a bell with the police. He had previously been named as a suspect after the murder of Irene Cross. But that wasn't the end of Trigg's story. He claimed that on the night of Gracie and Orange's murder, he had chanced to cross Townsend with another man. The man warned Townsend that the murders would soon catch up with him. Townsend scoffed. He hadn't been caught yet. In fact, he was going to kill someone else that night. After this encounter, Trigg followed Townsend to Gracie's cabin, where he said Townsend met with another man, possibly Doc Woods. Trigg saw Townsend and the man enter the cabin together, but he didn't stick around to see what happened. He ran away once he heard Gracie cry out. Trigg claimed that he hadn't come forward sooner because he didn't know for sure that Townsend had killed Mary before. But now, he was certain Townsend was a murderer. Based on this account, Hennessy believed both Oliver Townsend and Doc Woods had conspired to kill Gracie and Orange together. The story seemingly had everything, a direct confession from one of the killers and an eyewitness account. But it wasn't long before reporters started to think it was all a little too convenient. After some investigation, journalists found that Trigg worked at the Carrollton House Hotel, where Hennessy and his men were staying. It seemed that Hennessy had somehow convinced Trigg to fabricate his story to bring an end to the investigation. It's unknown whether Hennessy actually persuaded Trigg to lie, 
but his testimony did fall apart relatively quickly. According to author J.R. Galloway, Jonathan Trigg's testimony was discredited, and he admitted the story he told was not true. Trigg was eventually charged with perjury and sentenced to five years in prison. Despite the confusion surrounding Jonathan Trigg's testimony, Hennessy was sure he'd found the right man. Author Skip Hollinsworth wrote, Hennessy insisted that he was certain Oliver Townsend was the leader of what he called a gang of scoundrels that was murdering the city's servant women. Hennessy had trouble convincing anyone else he was right, but authorities were aching for any kind of lead. Based on Hennessy's story about the gang of scoundrels, they picked up another suspect, a man named Alex Mack. Mack had been arrested and cleared a month earlier, after the Ramey murder. This time, he was arrested because Hennessy claimed he was involved with Townsend's gang. Another investigation was launched, but once again, Mack was found innocent and released. This latest string of dead ends brought the public's frustration with Austin law enforcement to an all-time high. People began taking their safety into their own hands. The statesman reported that in the days to follow, Austin became the best-armed city in America, stating, The gunsmiths did a wholesale business yesterday, and it is probable that each home in town contains at least 14 rounds of ammunition. Austin households started arming their servants and teaching them how to fight back. Citizens organized nightly street patrols to protect against the deranged killer. For a while, it seemed the nighttime patrols worked. For nearly three months, there were no killings. But just as the town relaxed and prepared to celebrate the holidays, their sense of security was once again shattered. Around midnight on Christmas Eve, 1885, a local saloon's watchman rode up to Austin police officers on horseback. In a panic, he stuttered, a woman has been chopped to pieces. The officers knew exactly what it meant before they even reached the scene. The servant girl annihilator was back, but this time he hadn't targeted a black domestic servant. Instead, he had murdered a white woman, Susan Hancock. Police followed the watchman to the home of Moses Hancock. Upon arriving, they discovered 55-year-old Moses in the parlor, standing over his wife's body. Moses was unharmed, but his clothes soaked in blood. All eyes shifted from Moses to 45-year-old Susan, who lay sprawled out on the floor. Blood pooled from her mouth. She was still breathing, but barely. She had two deep axe wounds on the side of her head. Doctors rushed to the scene and bandaged Susan's wounds, but it was no use. She passed away soon after the police arrived. Moses then gave a statement to authorities, recounting the last several hours. His two daughters had been at a Christmas party while he and Susan relaxed at home by the fireplace. After it got dark, he and Susan went to bed in their separate adjoining bedrooms. It was a night like any other. But Moses didn't sleep for long. At some point, he heard a noise and went into his wife's room to investigate. He found the room empty. The bedding was piled on the floor, the trunks had been ripped apart, and the window was wide open. Moses searched the room and found blood on the windowsill. He told police that he followed the trail of blood outside where he discovered 
his wife's body. Moses' neighbor, Mr. Persinger, helped him carry Susan inside and then ran on to alert the authorities. By now, the commotion at the Hancock home had attracted a sea of onlookers. Men spilled out of neighboring saloons and gathered eagerly in the yard of the Hancock residence to catch a glimpse of what was happening. One bystander found a bloodied axe outside of Susan's window. Moses nervously admitted that the axe was his own. He'd likely left it on the woodpile in the yard earlier. As detectives eyed Moses suspiciously, Another man suddenly galloped up on horseback, screaming. He shouted that another dead woman had been found, Eula Phillips. Like Susan Hancock, Eula was white. A contingent of police raced to Phillips' home. When they arrived, they found Eula's nude body in the backyard, laying dead in an ocean of her own blood. A deep gash ran through the center of her skull. But that was only the beginning of the horror. Unlike the other victims, Eula's body had been intricately posed. Her nightgown was tightly twisted around her neck. Three small pieces of firewood were arranged on her chest, and her arms were left outstretched. Police were repulsed. After the most recent lull in violence, they had hoped the nightmare was finally over. But now, the killer had returned and the murders were more extreme than ever. According to Detective Robert Keppel, a killer evolves according to the nature of his anger. He leaves a signature which represents one or more of the core components of sadism, control, humiliation, progression of violence, posing, torture, overkill, necrophilia, and cannibalism. In this case, the killer may have been confident enough now to establish a signature marking his murder of Eula. Criminology professor Scott Bond explained, sometimes a victim's body is posed to send a message to the police or public. For example, Jack the Ripper sometimes posed his victims nude bodies with their legs spread apart to shock onlookers and the police in Victorian England. But the police had more immediate concerns than trying to decipher the servant killer's message. After they discovered Eula Phillips' corpse, they made their way farther inside the Phillips' home. Eula's husband, 24-year-old Jimmy Phillips, was still in the bedroom he and Eula shared with their 18-month-old son. Jimmy had a large gash in the side of his head, but was alive. Luckily, the child was unharmed. When authorities arrived, Jimmy was too disoriented to speak, but his mother told reporters she heard him crying just after midnight. She found him curled up in the bloody sheets and immediately called for help. Despite the posed body, detectives found little other evidence inside the house. But they did notice a clear, bloody footprint on the wood outside Eula and Jimmy's bedroom. Similar footprints had been found outside the scenes of other murders. This time, police rounded up previous suspects, including Oliver Townsend, Doc Woods, and Alex Mack. Police had each man dip his bare foot in ink and then compared their footprints to the one found in Eula's home. Unfortunately, no matches were found. As they had been countless times before, police were at a loss. And now, they were more confused than ever. 
The fact that the killer was now targeting prominent white families made them worry that they'd been chasing multiple perpetrators all along. They couldn't even be sure these recent murders were linked to the past six, given how different the victims were and the fact that one body was posed. This kind of change-up isn't uncommon for serial killers, however. According to criminologist Arnon Edelstein, the more murders that a murderer commits, the more likely it is that his modus operandi will not only escalate, but also change in order to mislead the law enforcement officials. This usually happens when the killer feels like they're losing control of the situation. The nighttime patrols and the general precautions the citizens of Boston had taken over the past few months may have made the killer worried the authorities were closing in. He might have targeted new victims in the Christmas Eve murders to throw the police off his scent. As Edelstein explained, these changes can be correlated with the model of the organized murderer and the disorganized murderer. However, the greater the degree in which the killer is not in control at the crime scene and did not plan out his actions, the greater the differences between each murder case. This makes it more difficult, if at all possible, to attribute several murders to the same killer. In this case, Austin police were likely dealing with a disorganized killer. Last week, we learned from criminology professor Scott Bond that disorganized crimes are not planned, and the criminals typically leave evidence, such as fingerprints or blood, at the scene of the murder. But despite these scraps of evidence, the disorganized nature of the attacks made it difficult for authorities to nail down suspects. So with no other viable leads, both James Phillips Jr. and Moses Hancock became prime suspects in their wives' murders. Coming up, the search for the Servant Girl Annihilator reaches a turning point. Now, back to the story. After the double murder of Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips on Christmas Eve night of 1885, the city of Austin was up in arms. It had nearly been a year since the servant girl annihilator began his reign of terror. Now, after eight victims, public paranoia was more widespread than ever before. Police had been getting pushback for months, but never had the outcry been so vehement. To protest what they saw as police incompetence, Austin residents gathered in the streets on Christmas morning, 1885. The reason for the escalation was fairly obvious. Before, only black domestic servants seemed to be at risk from the annihilator. But now that two white women had been murdered, the matter was taken more seriously. The Austin police force was suddenly tripled in size. A nightly curfew was put in place, and saloons, previously open around the clock, were required to close their doors at midnight. The new mandates likely kept the streets safer, but didn't lessen the scrutiny on detectives and police officers. With few options, they focused their investigations on the husbands of the most recent victims, Moses Hancock and Jimmy Phillips. Jimmy Phillips had a preliminary court hearing in February of 1886, two months after his wife's death. According to the statesman, witnesses testified that Jimmy and Eula did not live harmoniously together and that at one time he was violent and she left home, it is supposed, through fear. Based on these testimonies, Phillips was held without bail. 
Though little concrete evidence was discovered to link him to any of the previous murders, his trial was set for May of 1886. In the weeks leading up to it, rumors surfaced that, before her death, Eula had been seen around town with another man, William Swain. Swain was running for governor, so it's possible that this rumor was started by his political opponent to drag his name through the mud. Swain himself denied any involvement with Eula. But his denial only encouraged wild speculation. By the time May came around, the press around Jimmy Phillips' trial had reached a level unlike anything Austinites had ever seen. The courtroom was packed with onlookers and reporters, all clamoring to catch a glimpse of the supposed killer. The prosecution only piled on to the gossip mongering. They painted Eula as an unfaithful wife with multiple extramarital affairs as proof that Phillips had more than enough motive to kill his wife in a fit of jealous rage. During the trial, Eula's family and friends attested that she was afraid of her husband. They provided examples of Jimmy losing control of his temper and threatening his wife. In addition, the owners of two different brothels in Austin came forward with statements. One madam, Fanny Whipple, claimed that Eula stayed at her brothel two nights the week leading up to her murder. May Tobin, who ran a different brothel, claimed to have seen Eula multiple times with different men. In fact, May stated Eula was at her brothel on the night she died. Apparently, Eula was there at 11 p.m. According to May, they spoke at the door, and then Eula left in a carriage with a man who was not her husband. But all this was circumstantial hearsay. As for physical evidence linking James to his wife's murder, there wasn't much. Police Sergeant Thompson testified that his bloodhound followed a scent from the site where Eula's body was discovered up to the bedroom in the Phillips house and got up on the bed. Thompson claimed this was proof that Eula was killed at home and then moved outside. According to the statesman, the prosecution seemed to lay great stress upon the fact that the dog, after circling all around, went to Phillips and reared up on his bed as if they had sent it out the right man. But the defense fought back. Jimmy had sustained a wound during the attack, a deep cut in the side of his head, Two doctors claimed it couldn't have been self-inflicted. In addition, the defense pointed out that Jimmy's footprint didn't match the one found at the scene of the crime. Apparently, none of that mattered. After deliberation, the jury ruled James guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. Luckily for Jimmy, the conviction didn't stick. A few months later, in October of 1886, his attorney submitted an appeal sharply criticizing Jimmy's trial. In response, the court reversed the decision. It was another embarrassing blow for the city, but it wasn't the only trial concerning the servant girl murders. Moses Hancock's day in court came soon after Jimmy's. This time, the state was more prepared. They found witnesses to testify about Moses' excessive drinking and his physical abuse towards Susan. After his wife's death, Hancock had moved in with his brother-in-law, W.T. Skaggs. He complained to Skaggs constantly about the detectives trailing him. Another boarder in Skaggs' house, Joe Gassaway, suggested they get out of Austin for a bit to get some peace. He and Hancock took a trip to Fort Worth and Colorado Springs. Little did Hancock know, 
the police had secretly recruited Gasway to keep an eye on Hancock. By the time the pair returned to Austin, Gassaway had documented several incriminating statements made by Hancock during their trip. He testified to them at Hancock's preliminary trial in June 1886. In addition, Hancock's daughter read a letter written by Susan. Apparently, she was planning to leave Hancock. Based on these testimonies, Hancock was indicted, and a date was set for the trial one year later in June of 1887. It lasted only three days. Hancock's daughter, Lena, again read the letter where Susan expressed her desire to leave him. But after much deliberation, the judge dismissed the case. There was simply no physical evidence linking Hancock to the crime. It seemed unlikely that Moses Hancock or Jimmy Phillips were responsible for the servant girl murders. There was no evidence linking them to any of the deaths outside their own families. However, the killings also stopped after their arrests in late 1885. So if they weren't responsible for the murders, who was? The next most likely suspect was a man named Nathan Elgin, a 19-year-old cook the only problem was Elgin wasn't investigated until after his death. In February of 1886, two months after the Christmas Eve murders, Elgin was shot by an Austin police officer after beating a woman in a saloon, dragging her outside, and continuing to assault her. When Elgin refused to listen to police, he was shot in the spine and died the next day. In The Statesman, Sheriff Hornsby acknowledged that since the death of Elgin, there had been no mysterious murders in the city. After he died so violently in the throes of assaulting a woman, police decided to take a plaster cast of Elgin's foot. They were able to match his footprint to the bloody one left at the scene of Eula Phillips' murder. While this certainly makes Elgin a compelling suspect, it's not definitive proof and it's far from the only theory about the identity of the servant girl annihilator. Some theories contend that the killer was none other than Jack the Ripper. Author Skip Hollinsworth detailed the connection between a Malaysian cook who was suspected of the 1888 Ripper killings and a cook who worked at an Austin hotel. During the Ripper case, a London detective spoke with a man who claimed to have a lead. The man told the detective he met a Malaysian cook who had recently been robbed by a woman near the area of the Ripper killings. Hollinsworth wrote that the man supposedly said that, unless he found the woman and recovered his money, he would murder and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. This story eventually made its way to America. A reporter from the Austin Daily Statesman thought the culprit might be a cook named Maurice. He left Austin suddenly right after the Christmas Eve murders of 1885. Supposedly, Maurice said he hoped to find work on a steamboat that would take him to England. The Statesman also reported that Maurice lived only a few blocks away from the locations of three of the Austin murders, Eliza Shelley, Mary Ramey, and Susan Hancock. London papers pursued the connection, but were never able to locate Maurice. They concluded that the entire story was made up by the man who spoke to the London detective. Without any other leads, the identity of the servant girl annihilator remains unknown a century later. His dark legacy hangs over Austin to this day, 
a reminder of the danger lurking on the streets at night, preying on those most vulnerable. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Laura Snow, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>